I was born in Cuba and I posed as an Italian. I paid off the mob guys and just things started happening and growing. Before I knew it, I was driving the captain of the Gambino crime family around. Very colorful character by the name of Greg De Palma. What point did you know your job as an FBI agent, you were hooked on saying, this is exactly what I thought it was gonna be? You know, it was immediately. Just that whole movement of being an undercover and fooling people to believing the person you're trying to portray. Well, undercover became my home. Greg De Palma is the guy who appeared in that famous photo with Frank Sinatra, Carlo Gambino. Was he a, like a real, real mafioso where his loyalty was to La Cosa Nostra over family, where he followed the code to the T? Was he known as somebody like that? He had a big mouth. That was great for the FBI. He loved to talk, we loved to listen. He's looking for ways to exploit you. That's what he does with everybody. Is there a training for that? Meaning, is more caught or taught? They're out there committing crimes as kids. Then they wind up going to jail. But jail is like going to Oxford. In the mob is total accountability as to where you're at, why you're doing this. Is that his DNA or is that the DNA, the La Cosa Nostra, where they're always looking at, how can I get more money of this guy in front of me? Yes, absolutely. That is the DNA with that. Money in the mob always flows up. It never flows down. It's all about making money. You think that part can ever change? There's nothing but criminals. That's all they are. My guest today is Jack Garcia, a.k.a. Jack Falcone, who was an undercover FBI agent, 26 years of which 24 years he was undercover and for many different uh, uh, high, uh, many different projects that he had, whether it was going against the Russian mob, I think the Asian mob, he did stuff with Colombians, he did stuff with the Mexican cartel, but his biggest uh, uh, story that ended up being a book nowadays that many people have read is him playing the undercover, you know, Co uh, guy that's running a business out of Florida that comes to New York and eventually one of the capitalists from the Gambino family takes a liking into him. He gets into the family, is there for three years. Three years later, he penetrates the Gambino family, ends up arresting 32 mobsters, convictions of 32 mobsters, including the top members of the post-John Gotti Gambino crime family. With that being said, Jack Garcia, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. Oh, thank you for having me. What an honor. Thank you. So did I miss anything there? Did, did anything? I, I know you got a lot of awards. I know you've done a lot of great work. I know FBI loves you for the service that you did. Did I miss any part of the story when I went through it? Well, the, the main part that you missed, Patrick, was the fact that I was born in Cuba and I posed as an Italian. That's Something that at first part. I didn't even believe that I could pull it off, that's, but that's I did. That's the crazy part. That's the crazy part. So, so let's get right into it. First of all, just so everybody knows. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, you're somebody that came up. I mean, your story. You watched the movie Serpico, and then, you know, uh, you were inspired. That 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 kind of inspired you to want to get into the world. So, why don't you tell us a little about your upbringing and how you went to the FBI? All right, I was born in Cuba. Actually, uh, I lived under communism under Fidel for about three years before we were able to leave in 1961. And when we came here, we didn't speak uh, a word of English. And uh, my my father had a job in uh, New York, actually at three, in order to get us, you know, that this was going to be a temporary hold, that we were going to go back to Cuba when this banana republic was over. Well, needless to say, that banana republic is still there. Yep. So we um, decided to stay in America, learn English. And then I went on going to uh, school up in Washington Heights, uh, New York. And then we moved to the Bronx where I went to a Catholic school. And there's where I started playing football. And I had the opportunity to get several scholarships. And uh, 
went to the University of Richmond and it was there where I saw the movie Serpico and I knew that that moment in time, I wanted to be into law enforcement. Um, it was kind of like a cool guy, you no know, Al Pacino, long hair, beard, had the pretty girl with the motorcycle and the, an old sheep English dog to add to that. So I said, this is what I want to do. But unfortunately, back in the 70s, nobody was hiring and the FBI refused to return my call. So what happened in 1976 or so, or the end of 75, I was watching Univision and I saw this uh, American non-native Spanish speaking FBI agent saying they were looking for Spanish speakers in the bureau. So I called the bureau wow. right away and I said, look, you got me, you got my application. I'm ready to go. I meet the bill. They got back to me and said, well, you're not um, an American citizen. So I became an American citizen, which is one of the most proud moments of my life. And then I told them, I said, now I have it. Let's get this going. And in 1980, I became a special agent of the FBI. Now, let me ask you this. Right prior to that, what were you doing before you became a special agent? Well, because I couldn't land a job in the police department, I wound up working in some colleges as director of testing. Then I got involved. I actually got into the police department at Union County Prosecutor's Office. But it was short-lived. I was only there about a year. And then the FBI came calling. And, of course, the rest is uh, I, the dream of my life job. I love it. I love the fact that it is the dream of your life job. Now, Jack, if I was in high school with you, who were you in high school? If we're in 10th grade, 11th grade, who, who was Jack Falcone? Well, at first, Jack, Jack Falcone Garcia. was, was always, Jack uh, he's always a jovial guy. You know, I break Got balls. I, I I like hanging around with a bunch of the guys, have fun. I played sports. Uh, I didn't have a weight issue like I developed later in my bureau career. So I, I'm always an outgoing social person. So I, I was not a bully, but I actually protected those who bullied, you know, that were bullied. And uh, um, and that was the kind of guy people kind of gravitated to me because of my size. I was this big mama Luke, six, four. Back then I was around 240, 250. And, you know, it was uh, some kind of guy that people gravitate to. Makes sense. So you bullied bullies is what you did. That is correct. OK. And that that apparently didn't change for the rest of your life. You enjoyed bullying bullies. Well, yeah, I guess, yeah, so you're right. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, so now you go you go into the FBI, you got your dream job, you're excited about it. <clears throat> At what point do you get some of these assignments that leads you to working with the mob? How soon did you get a big assignment? Well, keep in mind that Hoover died in, the, in 72. So the Bureau did not really mirror the demographics in our society. So here I come in, this kid who speaks Spanish fluently. The kid doesn't look like an FBI agent. I didn't look your typical guy or dressed alike. I grew up in Havana. I was grew up in Washington Heights and the Bronx. So I had a little something with it. And right around that time, the FBI got involved in working narcotics, which was the early 80s. So I was the perfect guy. Here I am. I speak Spanish fluently. I know the streets. I'm able to, I'm a social person. So I immediately started working cases that were involving narcotics. And that's kind of where I, uh, I found my little niche in the FBI. And, and at, okay. So when that did take place, what was your first project that you got in? And when it happened, was it kind of like you were a fiend saying, I'm a hooked, I, I want to do more. I'm in love with like, at what point did you know your job as an FBI agent, you were hooked on saying, this is exactly what I thought it was going to be. 
You know, it was immediately. I went up working a long-term national security case, so I really can't discuss it, you know, Patrick, and and I apologize for that, but it was where I was working undercover. I was living on my own. I had a fake identification. Just the way that cloak and dagger, just that whole movement of being an undercover and fooling people to believing the person you're trying to portray. It, it was just so uh, enticing to me, and it was became like my adrenaline drug. It was something that I drew my high, my, my this is what I want to do, I, and I just couldn't way to do it more. And again, because there weren't that many people who spoke the language like I did, I was a shoe-in. So I just started growing from one case to the other. Each each case I looked as a challenge. And uh, I enjoyed working with the men and women in the FBI. Uh, so it was a perfect fit. It was my little niche. Some guys are good maybe working wiretaps, other goods in surveillance. Well, undercover became my my home. So at, at what point after you became an FBI agent in 1980, did you get the call for uh, dealing, going undercover with the mob? Well, How many it, years later? Oh, it was back. The first time I got the call was in the year 2000, 2001. Because again, all my expertise was working narcotics, either posing as a drug dealer, a transporter, a money launderer. Then I started doing police corruption cases, murder for hires. Asian organized. So I was all over the map. I never worked traditional organized crime. Actually, it was all new to me because I uh, here I am, you know, with my language skill. This was my little place to go. So I worked the Russian case. And one of the agents in that Russian case said, listen, we are have a situation up in the Bronx. We have a strip club and that's being shaken down by some Albanians and some wise guy. You interested? So I said, well, what do you want me to do? You know, and he said, uh, well, we want you to go in there, maybe t uh, do some payoffs and see where it takes us to, but pretty much take the Albanians out. Well, I said, yes, it was the latter part of my career. And next thing you know, yes, I paid off the mob guys to keep the Albanians away. And just things started happening and growing. Before I knew it, I was driving the captain of the Gambino crime family around. That's how it got started. Got yes. it. And this is in 2000 when you're doing that. This was 2002. 2000 is when I heard we may be doing this. Got but it. 2002, that Christmas time is when I paid the mob guy to keep the Albanians away. Did, 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 uh, did the strip club have anything to do with John A. Light? Was he involved at all or no? No, not Johnny A. Light, who was involved originally. The captain of the crew that I infiltrated is a very colorful character by the name of Greg De Palma. Greg De Palma is the guy who appeared in that famous photograph with Frank Sinatra, Carlo Gambino, and the others. Now, also, Greg De Palma was an owner of this club that featured all the headliners, Frank Sinatra, uh, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis, Sonny and Cher, the who's who back in the late 70s were playing at this mob-owned joint. So he was a quite-known celebrity. He had been in jail for shaking down scores, the famous nightclub in New York City that Howard Stern made famous. So when he came out, he reclaimed the strip club that we were working and said, this is my strip club. It's on record with me. Whoever is here now, which was another Gambino, they wind up surrendering to him. And at first we were a little leery with Greg because Greg is the kind of guy who's a big talker. He loved to talk and we in the FBI love to listen. 
So it was like a perfect match. We kind of hitched our wagon to him. And next thing you know, like I said, I started becoming friendly with him. I started seeing what he was doing. I was trying to identify who the hierarchy of the Gambino, the post-John Gotti Gambino organization was. And it really brought me into more of a going from a victim, somebody paying money to keep the mobs away and the Albanians to now becoming one of them. And that's how I wound up going there. From that, I became, I got put on record with them and I became an associate in the Gambino crime family. At what point did they start trusting you where they said, you know, uh, like, was there a tipping point? Was there an event when they said, you know, this is no longer a friend of mine. This, this is somebody we want to make a friend of ours. You know, at what point did that happen? Well, uh, very much. It was life is all about timing, Patrick, as you know. I mean, it just so happened that I filled the void. Greg De Palma's son, who was also a made guy who tried to kill himself in prison, he lost his son, his confidant. And I kind of became his son. So I was at the right place at the right time. And then he started uh, really telling me a lot more of the past. He started telling me about some of the issues that were happening in the Gambino crime family as to who was moving for jockeying for power, who is getting straightened out, why this person should be straightened out. So all of that valuable intelligence was great help for the FBI. So what happened is he just started making me part of his crew. But it was an exhaustive operation. I, I mean, this guy, talking about it sounds like, well, it's kind of simple, but it was mentally draining the fact that this man had so much demand. I, I mean, I could remember one time I was working another caper down in Florida, my phone ring. And at that time, we had the next telephones and I hear his voice and he had this raspy voice, kind of like a Robert Loggia voice. And he would say, Jackie boy, pick up the phone. So I was working on something. I just let it go. When I came home the next day, he get, cuts me in and he says, uh, where were you yesterday? I said, I was doing down in something in Florida. So he said, when I called you, why didn't you answer? I said, well, Greg, I was a little tied up. He goes, don't you ever do that? Because how do I know you weren't arrested? How do I know you're not talking or wearing a wire right now? So the mob, I learned something that they did not teach me in uh, while preparing for this case, that there is so much accountability for it. It's wow. not like when you're dealing with a bad guy, a drug dealer, and all of a sudden this drug dealer is you don't have to tell them where you have, where you've been, what you do the week before. In the mob is total accountability as to where you're at, why you're doing this. But I also learned the hard way from then on that anytime he called, no matter what I was doing, I was going to pick up, including when my mother-in-law passed away, I was at the wake and sure enough, the phone goes off and it's Greg De Palma. Now I could, of course, not tell him that I was at a wake because I could just imagine the boys would come into and, and, you know, have my aunt and my wife's aunt say, well, how long have you been in the FBI? You know? So I, I didn't, but I went outside. I took the phone. Did I want to take that call? Absolutely not. But I took that call because I knew it would have set me back. So this is the kind of thing that it was with Greg. He would call me sometimes at three in the morning, not just me, everyone in the crew. And he says, hey, you watching TNT? Rio Bravo is on. Oh, I love that movie. John Wayne is great. And I'm going, do I really need to hear this at three o'clock in the morning? But was, it that almost, was, was it almost a form of the phone call at 3 a.m. had nothing to do but to find out your level of loyalty to him? Absolutely. 
Got it. Absolutely. It was all what do you, about- What do you think about that? What do you think about that? Like you, you because- you know, when you work under somebody like that, it, it's, it, you know, it's, 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 it comes with a price, right? It comes with a price of constant nonstop accountability. How did you process all of this of having to win the loyalty and the trust? Well, I knew that that's part of the system. That's part of Cosa Nostra. That's what it's all about. There is no lone wolves out there. If you are on record, and you're put on record and you are using and you're flying under that uh, umbrella of uh, protection of that particular family, you have to adhere to the rules. You have to stay in contact because it's all about with them control. You stay in contact. They know if you're making money, if you're making money, you're kicking up money because as you know, Patrick, money in the mob always flows up. It never flows down. So it's all about making those Benjamins with these guys. And and the reason there is that accountability, if the, if you're going down to Florida like I did many times because I was working other cases, I would come back with a little taste. By that, I mean an envelope with a couple of thousands in it. Maybe I come back with some of the stolen merchandise that we claim that we had when in reality were forfeited jewelry. And I would say, here, you earn a little. So I, I, it's all about the mob of making money. It isn't about your personality and as jovial as you think you may are or great storyteller or this and that. If you're not making money for the mob, you're not even going to be anywhere near it because it's all about them sucking the life form out of you. Now, when you were there in 2000, who was the boss in 2000? Well, when I got there, the boss was unknown. We found that the acting boss was Arnold Scutieri, who was a loyalist to John Gotti. Mm -hmm. John Gotti Jr., and was part of the triumvirate that they had of that family. But then Arnold Scutieri took the nod of being the acting boss. And then came the underboss, which was Anthony Magali. And then the uh, consigliere was uh, Jojo Carrazzo. Those were the three that we didn't know as to who was running it. Because originally they said it was John Gotti Jr., then Peter Gotti. And then when Arnold took over as the acting boss, he ran that organization. Got it. Got it. And so, uh, so 2002, 2004, you're spending all this time with uh, De Palma. Are you driving him around? Is he the one that you're driving around? Yes. I want how it worked is his son who tried to commit suicide at uh, the prison. This because he too was arrested in the scores case. Okay, and also the one down in Atlanta, Georgia, I think it was called Solid Gold, some big strip club down there where all the celebrity stars and uh, and athletes would go. He got arrested with Greg. There was rumors that Craig was cooperating and Greg arranged it that he would meet with his son, Craig, and pretty much challenged him and said, you're a disgrace, not only to the family name, you're a disgrace to Cosa Nostra. So what happened was they found him in his um, cell hung. So Greg De Palma, when he came out of prison, he requested a one of those uh, uh, release, compassionate release. And Craig De Palma was released and put in a nursing home in Westchester. Now, the irony of that is Greg De Palma went to all these nursing homes and found one, and he specifically told the uh, the director of the nursing home that there was not going to be any mob stuff. 
And the reason why everybody knew Greg De Palma was a gangster because of his Westchester premiere theater days. So what happens within a week, we had all our meetings at the nursing home. All the wise guys would come in there. And my heart ached when you see the family members looking at their elderly uh, uh, family members and surrounded by all these gangsters who are either taking action or or paying tribute payment to the mob. So Greg De Palma wound up running his whole operation. He was what I thought a good father, or was he a good gangster? Because he was loving his son and taking care of him. But, you know, it, it was a little weird because it was also kind of selfish on Greg because it was known out there that Greg's son cooperated and that was a reflection on him. Mm. So, but of course, Greg De Palma's story was not that he was cooperating, but instead it was the marshals who killed him. I mean, as outrageous as that was, that's what he, uh, he was putting out there in order to cover himself in, uh, in the Gambino crime family. Was he a, was he a, a, like a real, real, mafioso where his loyalty was to La Cosa Nostra over family where he followed the code to the T? Was he known as somebody like that? Greg De Palma was brilliant in this regard. Yes, he had a big mouth. But again, like I said earlier, that was great for the FBI. He loved to talk. We loved to listen. But the interesting thing about Greg, and he told me this in confidence, when you make money in the mob, you have to kick up. You kick up to your soldier. If you're reporting to a soldier, you kick up to your skipper. And then the skipper kicks up to the administration. Okay, what Greg De Palma told me is he gave more than the normal amount because he always felt that the more you give will keep him in social graces with the administration in case he screwed up. And Greg De Palma was known for that. So he did play the Cosa Nostra rules where he gave money to his bosses in excess, just in case he messed up, they were going to leave him alone out of it, or maybe just, you know, uh, let him walk. Interesting. So he had the wisdom there to know that, uh, let me make sure the people above me are happy. So one, they're not paranoid. And two, I keep getting the favors and the benefit. Uh, uh, was he a decent earner himself or was he more of an enforcer? No, he was a, a very good earner. He had a lot of construction companies up in Westchester that were on record with him. He had control of a lot of union. Uh, Greg De Palma was, uh, like I said, he was a celebrity. And it was kind of weird too, Patrick, because when we would go out to dinner and we would go to these fancy restaurants in Westchester, honest people, you could tell there was successful businessman, older, would come to our table just to shake hands with Greg De Palma and reminisce about the great times that they had at Westchester Premier Theater. And Greg De Palma would take their calling card, their business card, and you could see him looking at that and saying, how do I get in this guy's pocket? How do I, what can I get out of this guy in the future? By the end of the day, sometimes he had 20 uh, business cards and he was always thinking. He was a true Cosa Nostra of always thinking of where to make money, how to rob money in every regard. Is is that is that his DNA or is that the DNA, the La Cosa Nostra, where they're always looking at, how can I get more money of this guy in front of me? Yes, absolutely. That is the DNA with that. It's all about making money. You know, and, and it's kind of funny when, when you hear them and you see them constantly, it's always looking for angles. It's always looking of how do I get over and it's how do I put the, and the way they work is quite genius is they put you on record. They think that 
you or your business establishment is going to be benefit from it and that no one will mess with it. Well, along with that comes, you got to pay. And along with that comes that now you own a restaurant. Okay, so where are you getting your produce? Where are you getting your wines? Where are you getting your linen? Who's doing your garbage? They got the guys, so they'll have put these people in place. And every place that they put in, people they put in, of course, they're kicking back to the mob. So it's just the way they work. It's a constant money-making organization of every way that they can, because that's what it's all about with them. It's all about the greed. And that's all I think I was able to get into them because of the greed is you wave a little money, you make yourself to be the goose that laid the golden egg. And there you go. You have it. Now, a question for you about that. When you're talking about, you know, hey, you give me some money, I'm going to protect you. The mob of the 80s is very different than the mob of the 2000 because Pistone came and cleaned house himself from 76 to 81. I believe he was there for like five years and 10 months, whatever Pistone's timeline was as an undercover agent. So the the days of if somebody messes with you, we're going to take them out. You can't necessarily do that in the 2000s, 2002. So what is the business model if no one fears you? What do people fear that you're going to do to them if you're not going to take their lives? Well, the, the mob has definitely morphed itself from way back in the old days. They come to realize that leaving bodies on the street is bad for business. Okay, so they know that. So they, they yes, they they are careful. They like to operate more in the gray area, like strip clubs or those corrupt union officials that they go in. They're not as open shotgun plan like they were in the old days to try to shake down everybody and everything because they know that people are wise to them. So it's kind of a catch 22 for them. They know that the mob runs on fear, but if they can't beat you up and they can't kill you, how is that fear going to be generated? Exactly. So it does revert to sometimes to old fashioned beatings, you know, where they just come, they'll beat you up, tune you up and tell you they're coming back. But then they're also very careful that they, you're going to call the cops and put them in jail. So it's a delicate dance that the mob does now and takes that extra precaution of uh, of really doing background on an individual company or person to see if they're the kind of people that you could approach. Because one false move lands you in jail for extortion. Yeah, but, but I'm trying to see, again, that business model in 2002 with the technology and where we're at, beating people up, you come beat the person up, that person calls the cops. The next time you're coming to collect taxes or whatever you're going to be collecting, they record, they turn it in. You're fake. You even the beating up stuff. I mean, yeah, I'll take a beating one time, two times. The person who calls them up, you know, it's so so it, it's a dramatic shift in business model for it not to be that uh, effective. So so let me ask you, I asked you a question about De Palma being a earner. You said he's an earner. Was he also a capable guy? Was he also a guy that was capable of, you know, crossing the line and, you know, handling the highest level of job if needed. Well, the way it was explained to me when I was proposed by Greg De Palma, how it works is they really, the mob looks for earners, guys who are going to make money. Now, if you are a person who plays by the rules, keeps their mouth shut, is capable of violence, could do time. Okay, you get proposed to be put into this life, but not everybody is a killer. They have their own shooters. How they work is you could be called upon to do something, whether it's dig a grave, drive a getaway car, 
do a block car with the police. Sometime and someplace they may call you. But unlike what the glamorization of Hollywood, not everybody's a killer. Not everybody had to kill somebody to get straightened out. Okay, there are a lot of guys who don't because these guys were making big time money, which what the mob is about. Yes, they do have their shooters, but not that. So keeping as far as Greg is concerned, he never opened up to me about any murders simply because in his teaching of me of mob ways, he says, once that bullet leaves the gun, you never talk about it. So it's like, why would he talk about that unless he's that dumb to say if he was involved? But what we do know about Greg De Palma, he was in Nino Gaggi's crew. It was the same crew of Roy DeMail. So, yes, could he have been involved in something? You know, Roy DeMail was just a sadistic killer. So who knows what he did? But as far as with me, he never led me on to believe that he was involved, nor did he brag that he was involved in any killings. Yeah, only reason I'm asking is because when I was sitting down with Sammy, uh, 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 you know, uh, an interview with John A. Light, John A. Light said, ask anybody. I've never seen John Gotti Sr. kill anybody. John always had people like me kill people, right? Now, that's John A. Light saying. Then I went and brought that up to Sammy. Sammy said, let me put it to you this way. Gotti, if he had to, I don't know if he did or not, because, you know, Sammy's such a true mafioso, he's not going to... Even if he knows the answer, he wouldn't say it because it's, it's not his style to do that because he still fully uh, uh, respects the code. What it was obviously minus what happened years ago. He said, don't get it twisted. John Gotti is very, very capable because if he needed to do something, he would do it. He's not somebody that you want to think that he wouldn't do it. And then you hear John Gotti Jr. Uh, when they ask him about Sammy, even though there's obviously a big follow not between those families years ago, even John Gotti said, Sammy, the boy, if there's one thing about Sammy, you have to respect. He's a true mafioso. Everyone knew he was capable. So that's what I'm asking is the pa was the Palma somebody that was a capable person that he could have done something, you know, or was he just a guy that was making money from what I know? He was a moneymaker. OK, you know, right. he was Fair. strictly a moneymaker. He had the Westchester Premier Theater, but he also had access to shooters, just like what you mentioned. Why get your hands dirty when you can get somebody to do that for you? Makes sense. Makes sense with uh, uh, with that part. By the way, do, do you notice a commonality amongst those who are earners that had a very, very high level of charm, charisma, persuasion, sales, negotiation? And, and at the same time, the model was have people around you that everyone feared, but you stayed the good guy. So was trying to stay the good guy, you know, versus you had the bad cops around, you know, the whole good cop, bad cop. Obviously, this is a they're definitely far from being cops, but did you notice the main earners were always protected and the best of the best at charming, charismatic and attractive and persuaders? Oh, absolutely. Spot on with that. These guys were more polished, like in the in the mob. There's your gangsters and there are your racketeers. Racketeer is a polished guy. If you are an individual who makes a lot of money, you do surround. Look, you're only allowed to exist because they let you exist and they guard you to exist. So obviously you're going to have the muscle around you and you could also call on that muscle because if you're working with the mob, by all means that they're going to say there's a problem, he's not going to get his hands dirty. He'll go see a skipper or his soldier and say, look, we got an issue here. They'll handle that for him. You know, you notice a trend with that. Um, you know, I, I sat down with Leonetti and Leonetti would tell me stories about Scarfo, you know, his uncle and how Scarfo was. 
And then I sit down with Ralph Natali. And Ralph Natali will tell stories, different stories of Scarfo, right? And what, what he was saying, Ralph Natali is definitely not a fan of Phil Leonetti. And Phil Leonetti is just, he wants to have nothing to do with the mob. He wants to just live the life that he lives. And he wants to have nothing to do with Merlino, none of those guys, et cetera, et cetera. Great. But they watched and they heard stories being told of the people prior to them, right? When... When Leonetti's around Scarfo, Scarfo would tell stories. Let me tell you how this was, and let me tell you how this was. And even one time they went and met Meyer Lansky, and there was a certain connection there with Lansky. And Natalie has a lot of stories of, of, of Skinny Razor and all these other stories that come up, and you keep hearing about these guys, right? What stories of which personalities did, you know, uh, 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 De Palma tell you stories of? People in the past. I'm sure he had stories about... Gotti, I'm sure he had stories about different people, but what were some of the stories that stuck with you from the people in La Cosa Nostra? I'm not talking about Sinatra stories, Dean Martin stories. We can get into that here in a minute. I'm talking specifically from the mob life. Yeah. One thing about Greg, um, he was very close to Paul Castellano. Paul Castellano put him in, uh, actually proposed him for a membership. Uh, so he had this closeness to, he was also enamored with John Gotti actually told me that when John Gotti was in prison, he took care of John Gotti. He said he bought him a hat because he sometimes was called chief. And he it was a white hat with the word chief on it. He said that he would take care of him, feed him during the final days. And everybody knew that, that that's what Greg. So he had this fondness. Uh, Greg was kind of like a, a brown noser. You know, when it came to power, he wanted to surround himself with the power in order to be protected by this power. Now, Grant, you look at uh, Sammy. Um, I'm sorry. You look at Paul Castellano. You look at him. I know he was very close with a lot of the old timers. One guy in particular was Rudy Santabello. Rudy Santabello killed the police officer, actually did time and beat it through the Supreme Court. And then he came out and we used to go to his social club and meet with Rudy, who was this little tiny person. They used to call him Handsome Rudy, but a very powerful guy who uh, was a captain in the West Side and the Genovese uh, family. So Greg's circle was more of the old timers. And none of these guys sat around and bragged like, I whacked this guy, I killed this guy. They subscribed to that, never talk about it, whether they did or don't. But we all assume that they had the power to do that because that is what Cosa Nostra is all about, that maybe they don't get their hands dirty, but somebody else will. But he talked about, about John Gotti Jr. He talked uh, very much about how John was uh, great. He mourned every year at his uh, the day that John passed away. Um, he was always uh, felt like devastated that John, and he was looking forward for Jr. to come out as were we, but the problem is Junior got hit with the Curtis Lewa uh, charges and they kept him in, in jail. So Greg actually made a phone call with an FBI phone that he contacted the family of John Gotti Jr. saying, hey, you know, when is he getting out and, and all of that. And they said they had some problems with him. So they, there was always this thing with Greg and others that it was always trying to get to the top and do whatever it was necessary. In fact, when I was out there with him uh, and we charged Arnold Scutieri, the acting boss, and Megali, he had um, Arnold Scutieri and Alphonse Siska called Funzi, who was also a captain in the Gambinos. 
they shook down this very well-to-do uh, guy and they took his American Express black, not platinum, but black card. And there they went on a spending spree with their wives to Vegas. And then after like 20,000 being spent, they cut the card off and we have it on tape because I was wearing the recorder when they're calling in. They're saying, you tell this guy to reactivate his card. That's an embarrassment to me that this card was <laughs> cut off. My And these guys were like kids in the candy stores. Their wives were doing Manny Petty's hairdo. They were shopping in the malls of the uh, of the casinos. It's oh, it, it was just insane of the abuse that they did. But again, there goes Greg kissing up to the bosses so he would be okay with them as opposed to a guy who sits quiet and then when it comes to take somebody out to say well what good is this guy he doesn't put any yeah. money in my pocket i mean i remember i sold i i we came up with a scheme of uh giving plasma tvs and this actually happened which i think you'll find it amazing so instead of buying it uh, uh a plasma tv i told him i fell off the back of the truck and my guys got it so we give it to Arnold Scutieri. Now, Arnold Scutieri's home watching The Sopranos. Now, do you remember the scene where Robert Leogia with Feech LaMana comes out of prison and things have changed and he's a little threatening to Tony Soprano because he was old school. He didn't like the way things were worked. Yeah. So they set him up by putting and storing these plasma TVs in the garage and then drop a dime to the probation officer and boom, he gets arrested uh, again, Feech Lamana. Well, what happened is Greg De Palma calls me in the morning. He says, I got to see you. I says, you're not going to believe what happened yesterday. I know it's true, but I got to ask you anyway, is that television stolen? I go, what do you think, Greg? Well, I think I went to the store. Of course it's stolen. He goes, I knew it. Last night, I get a call from the boss. He's watching that damn Soprano show, and they're talking about these plasma TVs because he too was on parole and he says, get this thing out of my house and get it out of there now. Wow. They yanked the TV out of the wall just for fear. So you talk about life imitating art. Wow. That was it. Wow. That was a perfect example. So, wow. you know, so this is, again, Greg immediately volunteers when I told him I had a couple yeah. that fell off the back of the truck. Let's give it to the boss. You know, that's the way he always buttered up everybody. And he was a Got master it. at. It. I mean, he would see you. Patrick, and he'd be thinking, how do I get in your pocket? How do I get in your business? You know, and then he'll say, okay, he's looking for ways to exploit you. That's what he does with everybody, because that's the nature of the beast with these guys. That's natural, though. That's not just it's one. A natural, way, it's let me it's ask you like question. a gift. How do they get, is there a training for that? Or no, you just see somebody do it and you learn it and you pick it up. Meaning, is, is more caught or taught? You know, it's something I think growing up in these neighborhoods, these guys are not Boy Scouts, as you know. They're out there committing crimes as kids. Then they wind up going to jail. Well, jail is like going to Oxford to these guys. They're sitting around prison. They're talking about scams here, scams that they got in the future. There's always a way to make money, but it's in their DNA. I've gone out with Greg De Palma to the big man shop that they had in New York City called, um, uh, anyway, it skips me. It's this beautiful store they had on Fifth Avenue. Right. We walk in. I'm looking at clothes. Right. Here's Greg De Palma sticking ties, socks down his pants. I go, what are you doing? 
So he goes, what do you mean what I'm doing? I said, we're going to take a pinch over here. You're, you're robbing. I'll buy them for you. Give them to me. He goes, nah, forget that. He goes, Jackie, this is what we do. You know, this is who I am. So it's their DNA. They are thieves. They are criminals. And they could be putting on their fedoras. They could be pious men with fedoras and 45s, but they're nothing but criminals. That's all they are. Interesting. And they're looking to get in people's pockets. And without any remorse. You think that can ever change with them? You think that part can ever change? No, and I think uh, I think I'm probably the only guy who feels that the mafia is going to come back. And I'll tell you why. In the FBI, the investigative priorities of organized crime is it's so low. I mean, right now we have terrorism, uh, cyber, uh, foreign counterintelligence. It's not even in the top 10 where when I was working it, we were in the top 10. Now, what happened is they consolidated five squads into three squads, and they got rid of a lot of guys on the task force. So what do you think is going on if there's nobody mm -hmm. there to pursue these guys? Yeah, They're doing what they're supposed to be. They're a criminal secret society. They've crawled back under the rocks, and they're making their moves in a way knowing that they're not being looked at simply because we don't have the manpower to do it. That's interesting for you to say that this, they could be coming back. So... Uh, because, you know, Merlino was in something recently with the election four weeks ago that his name came up, uh, that he may have been involved in the scandal of elections. And, you know, mobs been involved with elections for God knows how many years since Dewey days. You know, yes, you can go true. way, way back with elections. But, you know, so so you're saying it's in their DNA. You don't think it can change. So you don't think one of these things about, hey, you know, I'm a changed man right now. I don't have the same tendency as of trying to get money out of your pocket and I'm living a straight life. You think it's something that will never, ever go away once they're in it for 20, 30, 40 years? Listen, first of all, I commend you for the hosts, the guests that you've had on your shows. I mean, you've had some serious heavyweight guys. I mean, Sammy the Bull, I mean, come on. He, he is, he's a bad guy, period. 19 murders, you know, I, I mean, he's, uh, he's a tough guy on the street. You know, uh, you've had Phil Leonetti, another one. It's, I mean, these are serious guys. Now, have they changed or are they capable of changing? I don't know. It's if you, you know, what's the old saying? You can't change the spot of a leopard. Are you going to change this? I mean, Sammy had his shot to be changed and then he went into ecstasy and he got collared. So I don't know. I, I hope that they see their light to see whether it's possible. But would you want to be their next door neighbor? I know I would. So the answer is you don't think. Okay. So so let me let me go back to a part where we were talking about. We spent a lot of time with DePaul, and he was famous for talking a lot. Was there anybody that he had a dis like a, a extreme dislike for from the past in the mob world? Yes, there were two people yet. One was Nicky Carrazzo. Okay. Okay. He used to call him the midget. That was He's his the former name boss, for him. little Nicky. Little Nicky, but he yeah. called him the midget. Okay. And then the other one was a guy that he actually proposed for membership. Besides proposing me, he also proposed Nicky LaSorsa. Now, Nicky LaSorsa is a very wealthy guy. His family owns the LaSorsa Chevrolet in the Bronx. Huge, huge place. And Nicky made a lot of money. So when Greg De Palma went to jail, he told Nicky, I want you to go pick up money at these places that he has on record with him and send it to my wife. Well, Nicky was too busy. He had money. He was going to that uh, famous restaurant in Greenwich, uh, Connecticut, where all the celebrities would go. And he's partying up a storm. Greg De Palma, I'll show you how insane the mentality is. 
he gets approached while in jail with a drug dealer in a wheelchair. It was this guy, a Spanish drug dealer from the Heights. And he says to him, listen, if you want me to take care of this guy, I got a guy that could whack this Nikki Lasorsa because he was mother effing this guy up and down in prison. Right. So what does he do? They set up a guy to come in who was an undercover ATF agent to meet with Greg De Palma and Greg De Palma spills out what he wants this guy to be killed. Okay. Now what happens is Greg De Palma gets charged and like a good criminal that he is in organized crime is where they never admit that they're guilty. It's always like John Gotti said, you could catch me with a steeple coming out of my ass. I did not rob it. Well, the same was Greg De Palma. The only time he took a plea was when he was in the scores case and John Gotti told him to take a plea. So he took it because that's the boss. Now, what happens is Greg is found not guilty, even though overwhelming takes and evidence, you know. So Greg De Palma comes out of prison. And he's trying to reclaim his places, including the strip club that we were at now that I had infiltrated. OK, so now what happens is the FBI is saying, listen, this guy is marked for death. He tried to whack somebody. In fact, the FBI went to see Greg De Palma and says, Greg, you're out of jail. We know have information that you're marked for death. And Greg De Palma says, I don't know what you're talking about. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Right. And then we're saying, OK, so I'm out to lunch with this guy at meetings and I'm making sure that my back is facing the wall and I'm watching the door because this thing could break any time. I mean, I, you know, you start to think maybe someone's going to go down. Well, typical Greg, our surveillance starts picking up Greg and they see Greg the Palmer going to see the bosses, going to see this guy. He's spending time. He's networking like you wouldn't believe about two weeks later. The guy who we paid the money to keep the Albanian says, listen, this place is back with Greg or you guys could come with me. We chose Greg. And the reason why we chose Greg is because he talks so much. You know, we're not going to hitch our wagon to a guy named Louis Filippelli, who is now a captain. That was his name. Why should I, I put my horse to him? What are we going to get? Maybe little sponges here and there, or am I going to hit? the mother low with Greg. And that's what we did. But you had, I was careful because all throughout the case, they were saying, the boss was saying, you need to sit down with Nikki LaSorsa and kiss and make up. And we finally had that sit down where they shook hands and they did it for the better course. But if I was Nikki LaSorsa, I would have been pissed that this guy uh, tried to kill me, which he did. He actually set the contract out. Interesting. Very interesting when you when you're uh, uh, talking about who he didn't like and why he didn't like, you know, uh, even the bosses. Sometimes you hear about. Did he ever have any opinions about uh, the relationship between Sammy and uh, Gotti, or he never talked about Sammy and Gotti? No, he never talked about Sammy. But he, like I said, he did love John Gotti. He sure. respected him. Yeah. Uh, Sammy, no, but Sammy's reputation was always, you know, he's a tough guy. Sammy. I mean. Uh, I was glad, by the way, that was an excellent interview with him. And uh, I thought that Sammy is the real thing. And now I hear he's got his own show. So that's kind of uh, interesting. But, uh, you know, Sammy is uh, a guy out there who you don't want to mess around with, you know. And uh, now would he go full gangster on you? I don't know. But I certainly will want to find out, you know, if I'm a civilian 
out there is certainly approaching. And that's one of the interesting things. You got a guy like that who serves minimal time in prison and he's out. He could be a next door neighbor. He could be having, you know, you don't know who he is and boom. Now I do have a chance. I've spoken to a lot of guys in the life who cooperated and are now in the witness protection program or left the witness protection program because they just couldn't handle the restrictions and the parameters. And some of them are really, they, they realize that they, and they all say those who are not happy that they were betrayed by Cosa Nostra. They betrayed them. And they, of course, they, they mentioned the reasons for that. And they feel, and these are guys whose family were part of the, uh, of organized crime. They grew up in that life, but they felt like they were betrayed. And uh, their stories are, uh, you know, you believe that. And maybe Sammy, his story, the way he was betrayed by John, whether that's truth or not. But if obviously if it's true, then of course you have to, you know, side why he broke that Omerta code because he broke it because it was all garbage. If you're going to lie to me and you're going to put me in harm's way for nothing to do and just so you can get out, you know, you, all, everything's off the table then. So, so you see it from Sammy's point of view just as much as anybody else, uh, anybody uh, from Gotti's point of view. You mean as far as seeing it from Sammy? I think what Sammy did is uh, it's not being a rat. I think what Sammy did was uh, he saved his life. He said, hey, you know what? I, I did so much for you. I'm not doing it again. Now, of course, that's a delicate subject with uh, Gotti's and, uh, and Sammy the Bull. But Sammy did make a lot of good cases for us in the bureau and provided tremendous amount of intelligence. Now, what, what do you think about when you think about the name Joe Pistone? What, what comes to mind when you think about Joe Pistone? Well, Joe was, uh, I remember I got in the bureau in 80 and in 81, uh, I met Joe and I actually have an autograph book of his. Uh, Joe is like one of the many pioneers of undercover. There was a handful of guys, guys like Willie Reagan, Paul Branagh, Eddie Robb, et cetera. Joe was one of them. And, and keep in mind, people don't understand this, but undercover work is an investigative scenario, just like it is in surveillance or wiretaps. That's all it is. And sometimes you're lucky. Sometimes you're successful. Other times you're not. Other times the original plan snowballs into a bigger plan. Joe being one of the, uh, uh, I guess, um, for lack of a better word, pioneers of this, he was at a time when, and I saw this change in the Bureau. When I first started doing Undercover, there was nobody watching you 24-7. You were kind of on your own. You did what you had to do, and then you came back. You called the case agent, and you met him, and you talked to him. You told him what went on. But now that's changed to, you know, you got full coverage on you. Uh, Joe, what he did, I thought he did an excellent job with it. Uh, in that, again, he's one of the pioneers. Him and Eddie Robb uh, was another guy that they worked together in some case. And they set the groundwork for us to to do these cases, you know. So I got I got a, a question for you. I asked him. I'm curious to know what you're going to say about this. I asked uh, Joe when we did the interview. I said, Joe, you know, I've interviewed other mobsters and you sound more like you're a mobster than mobsters sound like they're a mobster. You dress like one. You put the glasses you're quiet. You don't say a lot. You watch. You're very calculating, et cetera, et cetera. I said, I said, did it ever get to a point? Because this is my assumption. And I said, I want to hear your answer. I said, did it ever get to a point where 
you enjoy the life too much, so much that you wanted to drag it out where the FBI finally said, you kind of crossed the line. You, you could have solved this two, three years ago, but you've dragged this out for six years because we're under the impression that you're actually enjoying the life. And uh, if you've seen the interview, you'll know what he said. But I'm curious to know, what do you think? Do you think it got to a point where maybe Joe was enjoying the life a little bit too much and he didn't want to get away from it? You know, uh, I've never experienced that. And I'll tell you why. I've, I've worked over 100 undercover cases as well as countless by bus. So my career is I jump from one case to the other. So if you have a case and it's good and it's give you all the toys. I mean, I played everything from big. I've driven Rolls Royces, 500E, uh, Hummers H2s, Hummer H1s. I, I've driven all and I've had everything. And for me, it was like, okay, you shut it down. Hey, maybe you're short-sighted and shutting it down, but I'll move on to another case. I think Joe was one of those guys who worked maybe a handful of cases. So I don't know the background of why he want uh, to keep it going. But the, my thing has always been, and I've had fights. And in fact, if reading my book at the end, I have fights with management because I've always was trained on the covers that when you work a case, you walk up the ladder is everything has to go. You try to get as long as you're gathering evidence, as long as you're pursuing, as long as there's nobody's life at danger or there are no threats, you keep marching until you can't march anymore. Unfortunately, in my case, after two and a half years, almost three, they pulled a plug for no reason. There was no nobody didn't believe that I was anything but Jack Falcone. My life was not in danger. I wish I would have gotten the five or six years that Joe got. You know, so but it wasn't. It was curtailed for whatever reason. Now, did that upset me and the United States attorneys that worked the case and the case agents? Absolutely. But what can we do? We're just pawns. So I moved on to another case and did what I had to do. In hindsight, yes, the case was successful. We took down the administration of the post Gotti. But, you know, I wish we could have had more time. I wanted to even go through the possibility of getting straightened out so I can introduce other agents uh, into the fold and maybe try to get that 32 into whatever to dismantle the uh, the whole group. So were you ever in it where, where, where Jack, were you ever in it where you're like, man, I'm, I enjoy this life. Was there anything about it that got you enamored where you were enjoying the life and you don't want to leave it? Well, you know, if you talk to people about, I've enjoyed, you have to enjoy working undercover no matter what you're doing. I mean, I've enjoyed flying jet planes with drug dealers. You know, I, I, all we enjoyed, I mean, the toys, the, 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 the pink earring, the Rolex uh, president watch, the, the money. I used to carry a knot like five G's in my pocket. Now you ask me, lucky I got $10 on me, you know? Yes, I used to walk in a restaurant, waiters trip themselves over to try to take care of big Jackie boy. You know how I many do now? I get sent to the bar and wait for my table. You know, these are all changes that are adjusted. Yes, when you're out and undercover, you're acting. You take this persona because you, in order to catch a criminal, you have to think and act like a criminal. Yep. So you have to play the roles, but you have to also understand that this is temporary. I had clothes. I had um, Xenia suits that were bought with government funds that I had to return. Even my underwear and socks. Now, Come who on. is going to buy a 66 Come long su suit? Yes, because it's property. So I've learned all my career. <laughs> I've learned through my career, you know, Patrick, that enjoy it. 
Go out there, enjoy it. Hey, listen, it's dangerous. Keep your eyes. We used to go to, when I was undercover, we go to these restaurants. We take over these restaurants that were in contact. We have five or six wise guys with about five strippers. You know what I'm saying? There was live champagne was flowing. I mean, this is what these guys do. You go out. Sometimes I went for Manny Petties. Never had a Manny Petty until I was with the mob. You know, I had cucumbers. You know, I just think like Hillary would have known what a cucumber was. Hillary, right? Baldwin. But anyway, that's another story. But yeah, it, it is seductive. It's a seductive mistress. It's something that takes you over. And you got to be careful because you it's going to end. And if you think it's going to go on forever, yeah. it's not. And if it starts affecting who you are, you better walk away. Uh, Jack, the 26 you were in as an FBI, how many years of it were you married? I got married in 84. So I was, uh, listen, my wife, I think, was a saint. Let me tell you, the success that I think I've had, okay, is because of her and my daughter. Okay, they grounded me. I Even though I never saw them because I have my own apartment, very rarely do I saw them. It was like when I spoke to them, and even if I missed a recital, even if I missed a holiday, okay, she didn't pressure me or get on me. And that's important because you need to have a clear head when you're out there with the bad guy. You don't need to have, oh, my God, my wife's mad at me. She's going to leave. She called yeah. me. She was very good. And I think because she lived in with in law enforcement prior to that with her parents, then I think that's what made the edge. But marriage, I've seen this job, Patrick, where it's affected people's marriage. It's affected their drinking. I've, I've affected all kinds. Guys have gone to the dark side. OK, the only thing this job did to me is destroy my weight. My weight. I mean, uh, I, I have issues because of that, because I'd learn how to eat. But hey, that could be worse. You know what I'm saying? I, I mean, it, it, but it does do something to you. There's a lot of peril and not too many guys could sustain undercover. The guys who say, yeah, I worked undercover, what, one, two years? Yeah, you know, when you're out there 15 years, 20 years, you know, it's grinding. It, it does things to you, yeah. you know? So you're still married to the same wife from 1984. That is correct. Let me, I mean, she deserves a purple, she deserves a, a, <laughs> a medal, medal of honor yeah. type of deal. She does. And my daughter was born the year 2000. Keep in mind, because I was never home. So yes, if you do the math, she was 2000. And then when I left the bureau in 2005, okay, I went from driving Greg De Palma, a captain in the Gambino crime family, to driving my five-year-old daughter around. And Patrick, let me tell you, there's no difference. They both want things. Buy me this, get me that, and get me this. Nonstop. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You, you know, I, I hear these stories, and I think with Pistone as well, I think he's still married to the same wife, by the way. You know, he is still married to the same wife. So it's interesting, both of you guys haven't served as long as you did, and you're still married to the same woman, and you lived a very difficult life of a person to stay married to. That is true. And it was weird because when I would come home, those rare moments. Way, did she know what she did? She knew what she did. She knew I was in the FBI and, of course, she undercover. Know you worked undercover. No, no, she didn't know. She did know I was working undercover because I would come in to see her. You know, how do you explain having an S500 Mercedes? And, you know, when you're driving a regular car. So all the toys, you know, the ring, like my wife would say to me, 
We got to go to the recital. You go there. You're looking like a gangster. You got the ring, the Rolex watch. My daughter kept saying, I want to take daddy to show your daddy what he does at work. What are you going to say? Yeah, my name is Jack Falcone. I am a, a Gamb an associate in the Gambino crime family. So you, you miss and it does stick with you being undercover. It's very seductive. And I understand why guys go bad and things have done because it, not too many people could could do it or put up with it. Jack, you worked uh, undercover with uh, the, the uh, Gambino family. You worked undercover with Colombians. You worked undercover with Mexicans, Asians, Russians. Which one of them were the most ruthless, vicious crime family you dealt with? Colombian Mexicans. Uh, yeah, the organized crime is a joke when you compare it to them. These guys are serious. It's all about a huge amount of money that the mob never makes. The violence, they'll not only come after you, Patrick, they'll come after your family. I mean, they decapitate people. They torture people. When you deal with uh, with narcotics and the cartels, it, they just could, they could own, they could have them, uh, the mobsters do their laundry in prison. I mean, they just, they're two separate. The mob has only become, in my opinion, the popular because of this romanticizing of that Hollywood does of the mob. And for some reason, people are love that glamour life, you know, the, the good fellas. But when you're working out there with these cartels and these people that are so cunning, like for instance, when I've met with a lot of people over drug deals, if they pick up a surveillance, they're gone. I mean, poof, you don't see them again. They'll wind up somewhere in California. Now, you're in a surveillance on a wise guy. You miss him or he's wise to you. Let me tell you where he's at. He's at his Gumada's house. He's at his wife's house. He's at a social club. He's with these other guys playing uh, hooker. They're, they're predictable. But Colombians are not. They're more sophisticated. They're so compartmentalized where if you take one down, no one knows what the others are. So they're like Dixie cups. They just, they make money and they get exposed. So people do ask me that. And Patrick, there's, there is no comparison in my book. Uh, the cartels hand over fit as far as more violent uh, and ruthless and treacherous than the mob is or will ever be. Wow. They're willing to go places. The other guys aren't. Who, who, who did you, when you were working undercover, did you work with any of the main names in the eighties, nineties or two thousands? I'm, I'm talking any of the, uh, uh, El Chapo's, any of the Pablo's, any of the Medellin families, which we, one of the... Yeah, we worked for their people. You know, they stayed in Colombia, of course. So we drove the cartels from Pablo and, of course, uh, all the others. But we also... Uh, one of the f interesting cases that really I've ever had it was a two drug dealers that were featured twice on 60 Minutes. There was the, the boys of uh, Sal Magluda and Willie Falcone. They were the biggest drug traffickers in Florida, and they were successful in not only killing so many people, they controlled the drug trade. And what they did is we had this undercover case where I went in to a guy that uh, one of the jurors identified as being dirty. So we created a scenario where I approached him at his work at the, at the airport in Miami, and he admitted to um, taking a bribe of about a million dollars. And the investigation that led from there also identified two other jurors. And those two other jurors, this is in a federal courthouse in Miami. 
also were paid off by uh, Sal Magluda and Willie Falcone. Uh, really an amazing group. And I had to testify against Sal Magluda. And I think they got a hundred and uh, some odd years. Willie Falcone decided to, uh, uh, I think he took a plea on that. But yes, those those are the guys from the 80s. Those are the original Miami Vice guys, you know. Uh, and that to me was probably one of the roughest guys. And then, of course, Armando Fuentes Carillo, those guys from the Mexican cartel, very uh, serious players. One of the cases that we worked with DEA was that when the first heroin that was produced in Colombia, we were able to obtain. And what happened in the past, the heroin came from Afghanistan or also came from China. So the cartels brought in a bunch of uh, scientists from China to process poppy seeds and they started growing it. Well, the uh, amount, the purity amount was, if not the same, but higher, but the prices dropped from like a kilo going for like 150,000 down to 65. And America was flooded with Colombian heroin. And that was what uh, that DEA FBI operation was uh, very interesting because nobody believed it. We, we had this tape conversation with the guy, we brought it in and they said, there's no way Colombia is growing poppy. And sure enough, that's what it's true. Did you do anything with Rafa Cara Quintero or no? No, not with Quintero. Okay, got it. Uh, you know, there's there's different communities that'll say to follow on. I'm curious to know what your thoughts are. There are those that'll say um, the 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 most corrupt organization we have in America are cops. Some will say FBI. Some will say the mob. Some will say others. You know, who would you say is the most corrupt amongst those three? And I'm talking the FBI of today. The FBI of the at J. Edgar Hoover days, you were, you know, looked up. You were like, cool, you were this. It's a different era of FBI today than before. Who's more corrupt if you were to say FBI, cops, or the, uh, you know, mobs, or even the government? You know, I because I was an FBI agent, uh, and I've seen the men and women in the FBI, I, I, I can't label them that way, you know. Uh, uh, yes, there is, listen, there's corruption in everything. There's corruption in IBM. There's corruption. We've handled, I did a lot of dirty cops in my investment. I did five cases of, of dirty cops in my case. We've also gotten dirty FBI agents. So yes, they exist, but they're a small amount. And thank God that we police our own, that we conduct that. But out of that group, I can't ever say that there is corruption within the FBI. Yes, there is a bunch of idiots sometimes that it's do certain things that they shouldn't be involved in. We're not a political agency. We're just, we're, we're a law enforcement agency. And then the, the fact that police, there's also a corruption in that, just like it is with the FBI. There's minor, and I think their internal affairs do a good job. So my thing is always, out of those four, I would have to go with organized crime in any degree, whether it's the mob, whether it's uh, uh, the Crips, the Bloods, or just... Uh, Asian or Russian or whatever you want to call it. So you would put it back on organized crime yeah. rather than, well, obviously you're, you're, are you a proud, proud FBI agent, proud member of the FBI Federal Bureau of Investigation? Uh, yes. Uh, I tell you my problem with that. What I did with the FBI was good for the FBI, but it wasn't good for Jack Garcia. You know, it, the, 
in hindsight, I should have never done all this type of work. It should have been somebody who just stopped. It's it just you shouldn't you shouldn't be able to have worked so many cases and been around all these people. And basically, at the end, you know, you, you just sent home, you know, and uh, so I that uh, that really for me, it's what what's the toughest part with the Bureau. But I am I do love the Bureau. I know there are problems in the Bureau. Some of it has to do with management. I know I've worked with some great managers in the FBI, but I've also worked with people who have no business being managers. I, as an undercover agent throughout the country, because I just didn't work in New York. I did Florida, San Juan, Puerto Rico, Philadelphia, Newark. I, I, I've run into people that have no business being bosses. And I've seen it. I've seen where guys even come up to me as case agents. And here I am, an experienced undercover, and you get some kid out of Quantico and he's telling you, look, I wrote the script out. This is what I want you to say. I said, you got to be kidding. You're going to tell me what I got to say. Just tell me the parameters of what you got to accomplish here. I don't know what I'm going to say. I have to look at the person, see what their body language is, see if I can go that extra yard. I says, no, you say, hey, dude. We say, hey, dude, I never used that word. So you're seeing a lot of people who are, I don't know where their training possibly could have been, but, you know, the the agents that I work with were amazing, competent individuals. I mean, I worked in a squad, just so you know, in Queens, which was Little Columbia. We had 15 detectives, NYPD assigned full time, and we had 15 agents. Six of them became special agents in charge. One of them became an assistant director. The other one is a CNN law enforcement analyst. So we had the creme de la creme, not only of the FBI, but the NYPD, these were second and first grade detectives. These guys, I go through any door. I would work anything with them. They were honest as could be. And those are the people that I gravitated. So when I got offered jobs as an undercover, I just didn't take it. As much work as I went into telling me what the subject was, I want to know what you as an FBI agent is. Because I'm, I know I'm going to have problem with you if you're going to cop that attitude. Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that. I've sat down with a lot of FBI agents, and one of the things they all have said, most of them have said, is at the end of the career of the FBI agent, they don't take care of them. It's just like, hey, great job, awesome, good luck to you. Here's a couple thousand dollars. Wish you nothing but the best. Versus, you know, really taking care of the life you live, being away from everybody. You know, it's a form. If you do your job right and you do what the FBI was meant to be there for rather than bullying people around who are just trying to live their lives. You served a very important purpose, very important purpose to be an FBI agent, you know, and, and I like the way you put it. You didn't just kind of, uh, you know, say, well, no FBI, they're all honorable and they're all this. You just kind of put it out there, say there's good, there's bad, there's the ugly, but uh, mostly what we did was good work that we did. And inside of it, there were some bad people as well. Uh, and I appreciate you sharing it from that perspective, by the way, you know, any, any, you know, the, the one story that's always unique to people is Sinatra. Did any stories of Sinatra, how did Sinatra uh, ever make money with the mob? And if he did, what was the format? How was he used? Did he use the mob? Did they use him? There's a lot of stories I've heard. What did you hear yourself from the Palma? <laughs> I heard a lot of Sinatra and Dean Martin stories. Uh, the classic uh, Sinatra story that I heard, by the way, he played about four times at the Westchester premiere. Two of those were free, and he was scanned by Jimmy the Weasel Fratiano. 
what they did was they knew that Frank wasn't impressed with women because he could get what he wanted. It wasn't about fame and it wasn't about money, but he loved having awards. So they came up with this plan of creating the um, the Knights of Malta, Maltese Cross, to award it to him. So here you go. They they create this fake artifact through the jewelry contact and say, Frank, we're going to award you with this and the Knights of uh, of Malta, you're going to be a member. It's like a 7,000 year organization. Has that been around that long? And absolutely. He bought his mother, the family, they gave him the award, Greg said. So now the next week they go back to Frank and say, hey, Frank, listen, uh, Knights of uh, Malta is so glad to have you, but we're hurting financially. Is there a way you could put up a couple of concerts for us? He said, absolutely. Anything for the Knights of Malta. So what they do is they set up these two shows that were sold out, you know, and Greg De Palma was such a thief at the Westchester premiere that you would get your ticket and pay top dollar for what you thought was seat number one, a, which you thought was the front. But what he did at showtime at the dinner theater, he put like 10 chairs in front of each row. So now you were row 11, you were in row 10. Wow. So they sold the place out. The money went into the coffers of the, um, organized crime with Frank. And actually, the story goes that he, when they took that photograph of Carlo Gambino and, and all the others, Doonesbury did a, a one of their four panels of tar showing that photograph and saying how that same year, Frank Sinatra received the president's award, uh, I think was from Reagan. And here he is hobnobbing with uh, organized crime. The rumor about him that he vehemently denied that he was involved with the mob, but he knew all the players and all the players knew him and loved him. So you wonder sometime, was he a patron saint of organized crime or was he a patsy? You know, it's you have to figure it out. But the Dean Martin stories were too. They would come in, they would play golf, they go out in the town. Dean did like to party. I thought it was always make believe what you saw on the shows, but no, he enjoyed his cocktails. Uh, and they would just go out and have a good time and make a lot of money with these guys. Very cool. Uh, last thing before we wrap up here, you know, you got now Michael Francis and Sammy creating content on YouTube. They got channels. They're doing very well. I foresee these channels uh, growing in the millions the way they're growing. What do you think about the stories you're hearing, whether it's Sammy or you're hearing from Michael Francis creating content? You know, I, I actually listened to Sammy's uh, tape. I was... Uh, Blown away. I thought it was a very nice job, the production. I, I want. I reached out to a couple of agents and said, boy, a lot of these FBI guys spoke. Are these recorded previously? And he, you know, cut and paste. He says, no, they uh, they provided the, the voices, you know, and these were top agents, you know, and the FBI, George Gabriel and, you know, uh, and the other guys. So Sammy has a hook to get into that. So kudos to him. You know what I mean? It's like uh, he was able to get these guys. As far as Michael is concerned, I, you know, that's for another story, Patrick. I'm not buying it. Let's just leave it at that, right? What do you mean by that? I'm not buying the religious act, but whatever it is, it is, you know. God bless right. him. If it's true, God bless you, Michael. You know, and uh, I do know his father was a serious player. I know Michael was legit as far as making money. Not legit, but he made some serious money 
uh, in the business. I was taken aback a little by the show Fear. Uh, was it Fear City? Did you get to see that show? Uh, yeah, the the four episodes or six episodes they had. Uh, yeah, I don't know how many episodes it was. Yes. Yeah, I was taken aback where they were discussing the hierarchy of the mob and they listed the boss, the underboss, but there was no concierge. They was like totally eliminated and Michael didn't even mention and Michael should know because he was in the life. They went from boss, underboss to captains and soldiers. So the concierge is like wasn't even there. And then the other thing he told the story that I found kind of amazing how he was telling Tony Salerno uh, that, you know, Tony Salerno asked him about, hey, you're doing good with money. Why don't you get together with, uh, you know, uh, get me some of my guys some jobs. So he says, yeah, I'll get you a job. Well, how much? He says, well, 1500 because 1500 says give him 500 and give me the 1000 Now, Michael Francesi was a Colombo. Okay, Tony Salerno is Genovese, West Side. If Carmine Persico found out that Michael is giving jobs to the Genovese crime family instead of his guys, what do you think that would happen? So you don't think that's possible? I mean, don't the, well, the families, first of all, when they were doing gigs together. Many times they would share even the gas business that was taking place. A lot of the families were working together so there wouldn't be a massive feud. But the family, you, you, your first, the way I was taught in this life was that your family is your family. This is your first family. Yes, you are Cosa Nostra, everyone's Cosa but you are, that is your family. So that comes first. So if you're giving jobs, if you're a combo giving jobs to Gambinos or Genovese, whomever, yeah. You're taking jobs. You're taking food from the table from the other guys. Now, I was a boss. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Michael is 100% right. But if I was a boss and find that out, I got an issue with Michael. He says, hey, you know, what do you think we're doing here? We got to take care of our guys. You know, you you come to me. I'll Maybe I have nobody. Maybe it's my job to tell Tony Salerno I'm going to take care of. But it ain't your job to do that. You know, it's amazing how much the world is enamored by mob stories. It is so Absolutely. amazing. It is so amazing they're enamored by the mob stories. And I know you wrote a book called uh, Making uh, Jack Falcone, which we're going to put the uh, link below. You wrote this a while back, but obviously the stories are the stories. If anybody is into the mob stories, we're going to put the link below for people to be able to order the book. Uh, uh, Jack, final thoughts. I'm going to leave it to you. What are your final thoughts? Yeah, I know you made some interesting predictions here what what a lot of people would disagree with you you said you think the mob's going to make a comeback which most people say there's no way in the world that's going to happen i'll leave you with the final thoughts well i tell you i that's just my gut feeling <laughs> and i got a big gut to go with that feeling <laughs> so i tell you pat i just really believe that this is something that's going on i mean you the when you're in the mob you you do your basic stables which is sports betting which is extortion which is loan sharking. That that hasn't stopped, especially during these pandemics. You know, loan sharks are making a killing on these uh, things. There are people out there who are looking to make money. So as long as the mob is generating money, there's just no way that they're not going to grow exponentially. Uh, they have to grow. And especially knowing that when they look in their rearview mirror, the feds are not going to be behind them. They're going to start looking to do so. And listen, they're also constantly morphing. One of the biggest stories that you should have uh, talk about one day is the fact that the Gambino crime family perpetrated the biggest Internet fraud case ever 
to the tune of nearly a billion dollars. And that's with Locasio, Richie uh, Martino, Andrew Campos, who is now is still a captain. And then you have Seth Mustafa. These guys created a bank and then they were tapping into all the cell phones that we had where they had all these extra billing, 50 cents here, 50 there. They made all of that money coupled with 800 numbers dial. Uh, so as you could see, th these guys, by the way, they did five years for this. Can you imagine that? Five years for a billion dollars. Where's that line form? You know? So, but these guys are out there. They're always morphing. They're moving in directions that they want to, um, you know, to make money. So it's no longer the traditional mod. It's wherever there's money to be made, you're going to find the mob. They'll be back. Like, like Arnold said, they'll be back. The mob will be back. Well, we will be watching closely to see if they'll be back. But uh, uh, Jack, thank you so much for being a guest and sharing your stories, man. I really enjoyed it. Likewise, thank you so much, Patrick. I really did. It's an Any, honor. All the best, brother. my friend. Take care. Bye-bye. You know what I like about this one is the fact that here's an undercover FBI agent from the era of 2000 and on. Because Pistone, when I did the interview, was 80, uh, 76 to 81. And you get some of the stories after that. But this is a different era and a completely different perspective of how the story was told. But uh, uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, what you took away from it. Comment below. And if you enjoyed this interview, I have two other interviews I want you to watch. One of them is with Joe Pistone, a.k.a. Donnie Brasco. If you've never watched that, it's legendary. It's long. It's a couple hours. Or you can watch Michael McGowan, another FBI agent who's got an incredible story of what he had to do. And he, his dealing went with Sicily, undercover, calling, negotiating with a boss and acting tough. A very different story that he had. And on some questions, when I pushed him, he got a little bit uncomfortable, didn't want to answer. But he gave enough information for you to be able to enjoy the interview that I did with him. So either one, pick on, uh, pick, click on these interviews to watch them. And with that being said, take care, everybody. Bye-bye, bye-bye, bye-bye.